Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. It says, Now it happened that he, meaning Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How in the, he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. <clears throat> Therefore the Son of Man also is also Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward, or literally stand in the midst, stand in the middle. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Uh, Today we're going to look at Jesus' teaching and his uh, practice of the Sabbath. The first thing we want, want to note is the purpose or design of the Sabbath in Scripture. Um... Jesus says very simply that the Sabbath was made for man. What does that mean? Well, when we read the Old Testament, we find that God designed the Sabbath as a day of remembrance or a day of worship. And it's a remembrance of two things. First, of creation, and secondly, of redemption. Hold your place in Mark and quickly go back to Genesis for a moment. In Genesis 2, we see the creation... Of man, It says in Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, I think creating a universe would make me tired. How about you? <clears throat> now, God literally didn't need to rest, right? But he ceased his, act, his, his act, acts of creation, not his acts of providence and preservation. Then in verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus, go to Exodus 20 first. Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, in the uh, first giving of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, it says in, in verse 8, the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For, for notice verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the day and hallowed it. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy 5, there's the second giving of the law, and there's some minor uh, uh, changes, not in in substance, but in emphasis, because this law is given 
um, right before they entered the promised land. And notice what he says here regarding the Sabbath. He says in verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but in the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, etc., etc., etc. But notice verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So in the Exodus giving, the creation is mentioned, and then in the giving in Deuteronomy of the law, redemption is mentioned. So the the Sabbath is a day of remembering. And what are we remembering? We are remembering God as our creator and also God as our redeemer. And thus in this, this remembering is really at the heart of worship. That's what we do in worship. We remember who God is. We remember all of his many blessings. So the Sabbath was a day in which we were to set aside menial labor. Well, today we often call secular work. So that we can focus our heart and mind on remembering the Lord and worshiping Him. Amen? But it's also a day of uh, rest. So, in addition to the, the spiritual aspect, there's a physical aspect. And it's striking that when you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, and there are many other texts that deal with this, um, that commandment's the longest commandment. I mean, he goes into detail. He doesn't say rest like we'll get it. Right? But you and your family, and oh, by the way, any servants, and oh, by the way, even your cattle, and oh, you get what I'm saying? So, um, the physical rest uh, is a main purpose of the Sabbath. And many texts we don't have time to look at deal with this in the Old Testament. One that I do want to look at is in Exodus 34, though, because it relates to the passage in Mark. In Exodus 34, he's talking about uh, various feasts here, and he's talking about um, uh, the Feast of Weeks, the First Fruits, the gathering of of the harvest, etc. And it says here, well, we'll just, uh, in verse 21, it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. The significance of this is we will see as we go back to Mark. Now go back to Mark. So, um, Jesus is walking along, and his disciples are walking along through a field, possibly headed to the synagogue. And as they're going, they, they grab some some corn or whatever, and they, they chew on it, you know. Uh, Luke makes the comment, they rubbed it in their hands. Um, and so the Pharisees are offended at this and object to this and, and make the claim that they're breaking the Sabbath. And they were basing that on this text in Exodus we just saw about sowing and reaping. So what they were claiming, really, is that by by plucking the heads of the, of the grain as they walked through the field, that they were engaged in reaping, and thus they were violating the Sabbath. Um, the thing we have to understand about 
the, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus is that they, as much as they would have claimed to love the law, what they did is they added many, many things to the law. These are called the traditions of the elders. And these additions ended up actually perverting the law. Of course, that wasn't their design, right? But by adding numerous regulations to uh, God's law through various interpretations that were developed over the years, the net effect, Jesus says later in Mark, is that they've set aside the commandment of God for the traditions of men. So these traditions originally were interpretations of the law. Uh, Now we have them in the Talmud, um, which is a large, multi-volume collection of Jewish regulations. And so Jesus is is uh, constantly fighting, if you will, combating the Pharisees in their interpretation of the law because their interpretation unwittingly undermined the authority of God's word. So the Sabbath to the Jews of Jesus' day was profoundly significant. Profoundly. Um, when, when Israel went into to captivity, there were two things that kept the national identity alive. One was the Sabbath, and the other was circumcision. These two things were profoundly important, and it, we, we can't understand, I mean, we really can't understand and appreciate how significant uh, the Sabbath and circumcision were to the Jews of this day. Okay, It was at the heart of of who they were as a persecuted people, as a people that had been in exile, as a people that had endured exile and oppression by clinging to Jehovah and his law. And and, and this this clinging to Jehovah, this devotion to Jehovah, Jehovah was, was bound up with their embracing of the Sabbath and of the covenant sign of circumcision. So there's a very powerful thing here that we can't, we just can't appreciate. It's not part of our, our mental, psychological world. Um, but the problem, as, as I pointed out, wasn't their desire to honor the Sabbath. That was a good thing. The problem is that they had overlaid it with the numerous regulations. And so what was supposed to be a day of rest and worship and really a day of feasting and celebration because of all that Job had done in creation and in redemption, it became a burden to people because it was overtaxed with religious legalism. So Jesus here reminds uh, them, really, the original purpose of the Sabbath. And he says this in in chapter 2. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is true not only of the Sabbath, though. It's true, really, of all of God's commandments. You know, it is very easy to, for us today to develop an attitude which is negative and critical of God's law. Um, and we, we tend to think of law as a, as a burden and, and a restraint and a chain, if you will. 
Yet, Scripture and Jesus always speak highly of God's law. Always. Let's look at a few, just a few texts. Uh, look at look at Paul's attitude in Romans seven, and this is really important because Paul is trying. He's dealing with this Jewish mentality here about how is somebody justified, how is somebody sanctified, and the the Jewish solution at the time was well the law, and Paul is saying no, it's not the law. But when you read Romans very carefully, what you see is Paul is never critical. Of the law. Because the problem isn't the law. What's the problem? The problem is the heart, not the law. And in Romans 7, he brings this out very clearly, where he says, um, where do we want to start? He says in verse 6, he says, We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? What's his answer? No. Is the law bad? What's the answer? No. The, the problem isn't the law. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Meaning, I wasn't, it wasn't really dead, but I wasn't aware of its motions. The law made it clear to me. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, notice verse 12, the law is what? It is holy. And the commandment is what? It is holy and just and good. The problem isn't the law. The problem wasn't the Sabbath. We, we, we do not uh, honor God or honor uh, His Word by in any way having a negative view of God's law. Because God's law is good in every regard. Um, Look at First Timothy eight. Excuse me, I said eight. I meant one eight. First Timothy one eight. Now Paul is de- dealing here with the te- teachers who are um, really teaching various forms of legalism. And again, legalism is a misuse of the law. And he says, um, now the purpose. Verse five, one five. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. For we know that the law is good. We know the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So this high view of the law permeates the scripture, and it also permeated the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus did not break God's law. 
The scriptures, now the Pharisees said that he did. They said his disciples here, and, and hence really him, because by implication he was, he was condoning their behavior. They said that Jesus was breaking the law. That he was breaking the Sabbath. No, he was breaking their traditions about the Sabbath. Their interpretation of the Sabbath. But he was not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus never broke the law because the Word of God tells us that Jesus was sinless. And not only did Jesus not break the law, Jesus fulfilled the law and he fulfilled it for us. Because we break it. You see, when we receive Christ, we receive not only what's called this passive obedience on the cross where, where he endured the penalty of sin, we receive what's called his active obedience, his active righteousness uh, through which he obeyed the law. Jesus on earth always obeyed the law. Remember when he was 12 and he wanted to be out preaching and he, he had to go home with his parents? He didn't really want to do that, but it says he submitted to them. Well, he was fulfilling the fifth commandment. He was obeying the law. And he did that throughout his entire life. That obedience of Jesus is what's imputed to the believer when they receive him. His righteousness is given to us because we have broken the law, right? And so, because we've broken the law, we need not only someone to take care of the penalty, we need someone to fulfill the righteousness for us, and that Jesus has done, and he imputes that to our account by faith. Hallelujah. Jesus, secondly, also always encouraged people to observe God's law, always. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. He says this, he says, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It surely sounds like Jesus is saying, you better fulfill every jot and tittle of the law or you won't be saved. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is saying that. And he's saying that to drive home the fact that we can't. So the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 the main point of the Sermon on the Mount is to expound the spiritual application of the law to the human heart and to show us how we violate the law in our hearts even if we're keeping, keeping it externally. See, this was the Pharisaic problem. External conformity without heart obedience. Right? That was the problem. So Jesus takes the law and says, okay, you haven't committed adultery? Hey, have you lusted? Gotcha. Oh, you've not committed murder? Have you ever been angry? Gotcha. You see, the law isn't just about the external application. The law is about the internal application. Do we obey it in the heart and from the heart? And as you, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not convicted when you're done, you haven't read it. You haven't read it. 
So Jesus is really driving home the, he, well, he's certainly driving home our failure to conform to the law, but he's honoring God's law. Um, look at Matthew, since we're in Matthew, go to chapter 23 for a moment. In Matthew 23, in verse 1, Jesus says, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one move them with one of their fingers. Then he goes on with this further critique. But the point is, he says, if they're speaking to you God's word, do what they say. Honor God's word. Don't do as they do, because you know what? They're not doing God's word. But if they're speaking God's word, observe God's word. Go back to Mark now. And we see this, uh, we saw this already in Mark, in chapter 1, where Jesus heals the leper, you recall? And what does he tell him to do? In Mark uh, 43, he says, And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And we see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. He always taught men to honor God's law. Amen? Amen. The problem isn't the law. The problem is the human heart's failure to observe the law. That's the problem. And that's why we need more than the law. That's why we need a Savior, because we cannot save ourselves by our obedience to the law. We are saved by grace. But grace doesn't mean we're saved to be disobedient, or we're saved to sin, or we're saved to have license. It doesn't mean that at all. As a matter of fact, that when you are truly saved, and you have the Holy Spirit, what you find is you find this great love for God's law. This great love for His Word. Amen? Amen. That the Spirit of God produces in our hearts. So, Jesus... In this passage in Mark, reminds the Pharisees of the original purpose of the law, that it was made for man's benefit. The ordinance is made for the man. The man is not made for the ordinance. And this applies to the Sabbath, but it applies to to law in general. The law was given to be a blessing to us. That's why it's given. You, do, you, do you realize that if we didn't have laws, that we would, our, our, we would have anarchy? Now, you, we see this in different areas of life, because as we've stripped away laws in different areas, what do we see developing? Anarchy. We're seeing it in the sexual realm, especially there's sexual anarchy, right? There's no right or wrong, you can be whatever gender you want, you can do, engage in any activity you want, and so now we have, a, we have moral chaos in that area. And so if there were no laws, that's what we would have, chaos. The law is a blessing because the law provides order, it provides guidance, it provides um, restraint. And so God gives his law to us as a blessing. It is a good thing. 
And so the Sabbath is given for man's blessing. Alright? That was, that was his purpose. So Jesus taught them this. And then, in chapter 3 of Mark, in verses 1 through 7, he now illustrates it by his conduct. So let's read chapter 3. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So he watched. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had a withered hand, step forward. Then he said to him, excuse me, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus now illustrates on the Sabbath what he had taught them about the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So there, hence, it was lawful on the Sabbath to heal. Um, Many truths here in this passage, but I just want to look at a a few brief points. One is this. The, The Pharisees' silence. Jesus asked them a question which really, it's like, isn't the answer obvious? I mean, isn't it obvious? So, did they not know? Or did they know and didn't want to say because they didn't want to really admit defeat. We don't know. But we know this, that their silence was damning. By saying nothing, they spoke a whole sermon. Right? And their, their silence was really the sin of omission. So Jesus looks around. He's staring at them, waiting for an answer. And it says here, Uh, as he looked at them, that he was angry, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So Jesus, um, this is the only text in the Gospels where it specifically says Jesus was angry. Now there's another place in Mark where Mark says that Jesus was displeased, um, a different word, but still implying irritated and maybe a little angry. (laughs) This word here means angry. Um, and it, it was very interesting as I, as I studied this week for this sermon how uh, different commentators dealt with Jesus' anger. And when you read the Puritans, they were like, Jesus is angry, of course. <laughs> then you, you read the Victorians, and I just said to you, well, Jesus is angry, but let me explain why. Like, almost, i got to apologize for this. Because Jesus is meek and mild, and meek and mild people don't get angry. Um, So what we see here in Jesus' anger, though, is two things. We see um, really a reflection of his perfect manhood. Because the man who's not indignant in the face of evil is not a mature man. He's not a holy man. Because we're told in Scripture, ye who love the Lord hate evil. Not hate people but hate evil. And so, 
um, we often substitute moral indifference for biblical love. And we substitute sentiment for biblical love. Biblical love is much, how shall I say, tougher than modern tolerance. Modern, the modern view of love is let people do whatever they want. The biblical view of love is some things are harmful and ought not to be done. And if I love someone, I do not want them to do it. Not because it offends my religious sensibilities or my traditions, but because that thing they are doing is hurting them. And that's why here in this text, uh, I think it's very important that when it says Jesus was angry, it says being grieved. Because biblical anger, righteous anger, always has an element of compassion in it. It is not just anger, but it is anger and sadness mixed. It's the kind of anger that will not simply denounce a sin, but an anger that will pray for the sinner. And so it's easy to look at evil and denounce evil. I could stand up here all morning and talk about the sins in our society, the sins in the evangelical church, the sins in this church. That would be easy. But does it, does it weigh on my heart and lead me to intercede and pray? Does it grieve me? Does it burden me? So anger isn't enough. It must be an anger in order for it to be a holy anger like the anger of Jesus. It has to be an anger that is mixed with love and compassion. In, in the old days, we used to say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Um, that's, that's the idea. We don't hate people. We don't hate people that are engaged in, in uh, conduct that are, that's contrary to God's word. But we are called to hate sin. But not just in others, but even in ourselves. And you see, that's where we need to be very careful about what we call righteous indignation. Because it's very easy to see the sins of others while overlooking our own. And that's why Jesus uh, talked about the plank in one's eye, right? You take the plank out, and then you can see the speck in your brother's eye. Until you deal with the sin in your own life, he's saying, you can't really help people deal with their sin. So deal with your own heart first. And then you, as you learn about the reality of sin and how to get victory, as you learn that in your own life, then now you can help your brother get, get the speck out of his eye, deal with sin in his life. But I asked myself the question as I read this text, why here, of all the, all the encounters with the, with the Pharisees, now I think Jesus was angry in other places. When he denounces them in, in Matthew and he says, woe to you, right? Seven, the seven woes there. It's like, wow, if he's not mad there, then he was never mad. Okay? It just doesn't say he was angry. Um, but you know, why, why here? And I think, the text doesn't say, but let me just share a few thoughts. And one is this. It says Jesus was angry at the hardness, or uh, literally, it's at the hardening of their hearts. In other words, it was happening as he stood there, in their midst. It was happening as he spoke to them. 
And he saw it happening because he could see the heart, right? And Jesus was angered, um, not just that their hearts were hardening, but that their hearts were hardening in the face of human suffering. The fact that they couldn't see because of their religious formalism, they couldn't see that the right thing to do was to heal this man. Made Jesus angry and it grieved him because of their profound lack of compassion. When you read scripture, what we, one of the things we learn about the heart of God is that one of the things that makes God angry is oppression. Oppression of any kind. Economic oppression, racial oppression, any oppression of any kind makes God angry. God cares about those who are deserted. He cares about those who are forsaken. He cares about those who are weak. He cares about the vulnerable. It's true. Um, I love I love where David says, "Well, my when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up." I mean, that's the heart of God. When I have nobody else, I have the Lord. In other words, the Lord is looking at those, at the needy, at the poor, the widow, the stranger. This is the heart of God. We could literally look at dozens and dozens of texts. And this is the heart of Jesus. And we see it all throughout his ministry, how he cared about the people that um, the Pharisees were indifferent to. And the Lord is grieved at any form of oppression. And he's grieved when those professing his name have a lack of compassion on those who are suffering. But I think also... The Lord was angry because this this hardness of heart also involved a perversion of his word. Okay? This this incident here in the in the synagogue and the incident in the field are tied together by the theme of the Sabbath and by the fact that through their traditions they had perverted God's design for the Sabbath. See that that that's uh, that's really the point here. They were perverting a good thing into a bad thing by their tradition. And Jesus, I think, was grieved not just at the human suffering, but that the suffering was going on uh, and almost being sanctioned, if you will, by God's word, or what was supposedly God's word. The worst kind of uh, legalism the worst kind of self-righteousness that there can be, the worst kind of pride, as I said last week, there can be, is the kind that wraps itself in sanctity. And, and we see that's why we've seen in history so much cruelty in the name of God and religion. Because people are convinced that they're speaking and acting for God. Right? But it is, it is a perversion, it was a perversion of God's word here that led them to this lack of compassion. But thirdly, I think also the Lord was angry because as it regarded the Pharisees themselves, their role was to shepherd God's people. And their hardness of heart was a, not just an abdication, but a betrayal of their office. Uh, we're going to come back to Mark, but, but turn to Ezekiel just for a moment in chapter 34. Ezekiel 34, it says, And the word of the Lord, verse 1, came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, not against Israel, the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed the sick. That's exactly what was happening in Mark. The shepherds of Israel were sitting there, and there's a sick man, and they were utterly indifferent to his suffering. And thus it was a betrayal of their office as God's shepherds. Those in leadership are bound by the word of God to serve those under them, if you will. As we've, as we've seen, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus' view of leadership is that the greatest is he who has the greatest number that he serves, not he who has the greatest servants. And that biblical leadership, whether it's a pastor, a husband, uh, someone in uh, civil authority, their role is not to lord it over. Their role is to minister and to serve those under them. In other words, their role is to protect That's what leadership is for. That's why God gives authority. It's to protect. And of course, the the Pharisees had abdicated that. And they enjoyed, as Jesus said, the greetings in the marketplace, the best seats at the feast. They enjoyed the perks of leadership and the perks of their position, but they did not assume the responsibilities of it. And they, they had abandoned those that they were to truly care for. And of course, this made Jesus angry. He was angry that they lacked compassion. He was angry that they perverted God's word. And he was angry that they had betrayed their office. I think I understand why I was angry. Amen. So let's conclude with a couple observations for ourselves. The first one is this. We need to be cautious lest we also pervert God's word. We are warned in Deuteronomy not to add nor to subtract to God's word. And then we are told at the end of the book of Revelation the same warning. Not to add nor to subtract. This is a temptation we all have. We have, you know, you know, if you, as you look back at the church and, and, and you think about some of the crazy things the churches have done, you think about churches have split over things like whether or not you have to wear a tie when you preach. I mean, is that in the Bible? I mean, really, you talk about adding. I mean, there are so many traditions that we have added in different ways. And, um, and different cultures add different traditions. Why? Because what's happening is the culture is impinging on the church. And so the church then takes begins to take the shape of the culture and, and various priorities in the culture. The word of God is our standard. But but the standard is not our um, cultural how shall I say what's the word? Our cultural expressions of our faith are not the standard. It's the word that's the standard. And so we need to beware of the standard by which we judge. And it must be the word and the word alone. Um, 
my opinion and your opinion are not really very valuable. It's true. People ask my opinion about stuff all the time. I'm like, eh, I don't really have an opinion. (laughs) Because it doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't, my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is does the words address that? Because that's our standard of judgment. And so Jesus, again, debating the Pharisees, when they were, they were condemning again, he says, you judge after the flesh. If you're going to judge, judge righteous judgment. Well, how do we know what's righteous? Through the word. But we must be careful in our, in our uh, use of the word that we truly are understanding it and not misusing it. Okay? Because the human heart... It's a very subtle thing. Second lesson is, let us not sin by silence. God wants a people of compassion, a people that cares about the outcast, the alien, the stranger, the poor, the oppressed. Um, I believe that the greatest sins that you and I commit are the sins we do not do. It's the good we do not do. Did you follow that? It is our it is our lack of doing, which in the end I believe will be we will find are the greatest things we've done. I mean, most of us, if we've known the Lord for any time, we've dealt with a lot of the big sins. You know, we're not good, we're not doing you know we're not out in the bars and sleeping around and doing crazy stuff. But it's all like what we're not doing. Well, I'm not like that person. I'm not like that person. I'm not like this terrible culture we live in. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that. Okay, well, what are you? A minus sign? <laughs> I mean, what? no, really, what are you? I mean, what are you stand for the Lord and say, Lord, I read my Bible a couple times a week and I didn't look at porn. Reward? Okay, I looked at porn a little bit. <clears throat> Reward? And I say, what'd you do? Well, I didn't do anything. But I didn't do the bad stuff. I wasn't like those sinners. Now, who does that sound like? The Pharisee in the temple. See, I wasn't like the sinner. Okay, great. But we're not called to not be like the sinner. We're called to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't come down and say, I'm going to sit in the temple for three years and I'm not going to sin. There's my example. No, he went out on a mission, and the mission was to heal and to teach and restore and to feed. You hearing me? It was to do the will of the Father. It wasn't to just not do the will of the evil one. It was to do the will of the Father, which Jesus said was his meat and drink, his food. So we're called to mission, and our mission is to be like Jesus. We're called also to care for the multitude that when he looked at it, 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 what he saw was sheep without a shepherd because they had been abandoned by their shepherds. He saw people wondering, confused, lonely, oppressed. And so when he looked at the, the, the sinner, he saw a real person in need. The Pharisees couldn't get past the sin to love the sinner. Jesus wasn't 
put off by the sin. It was the sin was the thing that made him hone in on the person. Because their sin told them, this person needs me. They need me. So we, we Christians need to realize that our righteousness, if it's going to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, must be more than a denial. It must be more than a negation. It must be a positive lifestyle in which we are imitating the life of Jesus. And Jesus didn't have a big house in the suburbs. He didn't have two cars. didn't have dogs and cats. He didn't have the American dream. Jesus had a life of toil. He was a man of sorrows because he was bearing the burdens of others. He was healing the sick. He was feeding the hungry. He was teaching the ignorant because of his great compassion for them. Amen? That's what we're called to do. Now, don't, don't hear anything I'm saying as if it's like some kind of license to sin. No, it's not. But if you fill your life with the mission of Jesus, you're not going to have a time for a bunch of that sin. And a lot of Christians are in a sin because they're bored. They have nothing better to do. Because they're not serving the Lord. Not truly. Jesus uh, is our model, and that's one of the reasons I've, I've uh, led us into the book of Mark. Is because Jesus uh, was a man of action in the book of Mark. He was a man of ministry. Uh, and, and he is our model in this this thing. We are to be like him. And hence we are to be engaged in the work of God. Amen? Not just denouncing what other people are doing wrong, but rather doing what is right. Doing what is right. Last point. Um, is this. Let's not harden our hearts to Christ like the Pharisees did. I have to read you the quote by Alexander McLaren. If you've never read any of his sermons, you should read some. He was a he was a Victorian guy. He's kind of a he's kind of a gentle guy. Um most of his stuff isn't like you know, hell of fire and brimstone. He's he's not great teacher. He says here, um, he says, Jesus, of course, was grieved at the hardening of their hearts. He says, and what was hardening their hearts? It was he. Why were their hearts being hardened? Because they were looking at him, his graciousness, his goodness, his power. And they were steeling themselves against him opposing to his grace and tenderness their own obstinate determination. Some little gleams of light were coming in at their windows and they clapped the shutters up. Some tones of his voice were coming into their ears and they stuffed their fingers into them. They have felt that if they let themselves be influenced by him, it was all over. And so they set their teeth and studied themselves in their antagonism. He's trying to bring out the fact that What's happening here in, in the in the synagogue was a, a process that was literally happening right before Jesus' eyes as he spoke and as he ministered. They were getting hard. And then McLaren says this, when I read it, I about fell out of my chair. And that is what some of you 
are doing now. You believe he said that to his church? Jesus Christ has preached to you, even although it is as imperfectly as I do it, but that you either gather yourselves into an attitude of resistance or at least of mere indifference to the flow of the sermon's words is done, or else open your hearts to his mercy and his grace. Wow. That's something. Oh, dear brethren, will you take this lesson of the last part of my text that nothing so tends to harden a man's heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ as religious formalism? If Jesus Christ were to come in here now and stand where I am standing and look round about upon this congregation, I wonder how many a highly respectable and perfectly proper man and woman, church and chapel goer, who keeps the Sabbath day, he would find on whom he had to look with grief, not not unmingled with anger, because they were hardening their hearts against him now. I am sure there are some such among my present audience. I am sure there are some of you about whom it is true that the publicans and the harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. Because in their degradation, they may be nearer to the lowly penitence and consciousness of their own misery and need, which will open their eyes to see the beauty and the preciousness of Jesus Christ. Can you believe he said that to his church? Well, he just said it to us. Let's stand. Dear Father, I pray against in my heart and in the heart of all of us, I pray against religious formalism, religious hypocrisy, and most of all, Lord, I pray against a hard heart that somehow uses you or your word as a justification for a lack of compassion. I pray, Lord, that you would just remind us regularly of your great mercy and grace that you've shown us and that therefore, Lord, we would be a people of mercy and grace. Remind us that all that we have, any victory over sin, any goodness in us is a gift from you. Remind us that our salvation is completely of grace so that no one can boast. It's a gift from you. Teach us to say, Lord, when we see those who are in sin, teach us to to say, there go I, but for the grace of God. And Lord, give give us the eyes of your son Jesus, who could see the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd, who needed his love, needed his ministry. Lord, we're surrounded by people that need you. Open our eyes to their need. We ask it in your name. Amen.